Thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of Seward and Kissel's ESG Spotlight Series. I'm Debbie Franzese, a partner in Seward and Kissel's Investment Management Group and also head of the firm's ESG Task Force. We're very excited to be joined by Nidhi Chada of Enzo Advisors for today's episode. Nidhi is a generalist growth investor and advisor across public and private markets. She's currently the founder and CEO of Enzo Advisors, which is a global sustainability consulting firm. And so we're very excited to have her joining us today. And I know that she'll have a lot of valuable information for all of you. Nidhi, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss about your background or the services that Enzo provides before we get started. Thanks, uh, Debbie, first of all, for having me. I'm uh, really excited to be here and share my perspectives. Uh, just a bit of, about our company. Uh, we focus both on corporates and institutional investors and in helping to draft ESG roadmaps, everything from diagnostic assessment to developing the roadmaps in uh, alignment with various uh, global frameworks, as well as drafting initiatives that are in line with these uh, SASB, GRI, and TCFD frameworks, uh, both covering climate as well as uh, various social initiatives. And then we also help with the external uh, reporting and communication as well. Uh, the team has really uh, come from a very diverse background from investment banking and financial analysis to consulting as well as investment management. And we really take a very proprietary approach to how we look at uh, sustainability. We have a very holistic approach in taking a quantitative and a qualitative look, and we really view sustainability as key to any company's durable competitive advantage. So that's very critical to how uh, corporates are looking at it, as well as investors. And excited to uh, share some more insights uh, for the call today. That's great. Yeah, that's one of the things that our clients are, are really focused on is thinking about how they can make this work for their firm, since it's obviously a topic that's really relevant for everyone. So starting on that point, how do you work with clients in helping them think about integrating ESG principles across their portfolio? One of the things that we speak to a lot of managers about is that even if they don't have an ESG-focused or sustainability-focused fund, that they still are looking at ESG principles, whether it's as part of risk management or just generally in connection with their strategy. And then we have seen that this does vary whether people are investing in the public markets or the private markets. Um, so if you could speak to that point as well. Sure. So ESG is a term that's used very broadly, and there's a lot of facets to that. And essentially, I think of ESG as an overall umbrella and from a terminology standpoint. And it really just describes uh, essentially anything that falls within that corporate social responsibility framework. However, there will be funds and fund managers that will focus on uh, socially responsible investing that might include uh, some exclusions from a sector standpoint. And then at the very end of the spectrum, there's also impact investing. So when we guide investors uh, in terms of their process. We really want to focus in on what exactly their investment goals are, what their processes are, and we have to think about, without changing their stripes, what essentially we want to incorporate from an ESG principle standpoint. And it really varies by fund, by manager, by geography. Um, that being said, there are some uh, key aspects of the process that we always incorporate um, from start to finish. 
So um, with respect to public and private markets, so we actually uh, do advise both uh, private equity venture as well as public asset managers in terms of ESG integration. And Debbie, the good news is that we are still very early in terms of adopting ESG principles across portfolios. And myself, having been in the investment world for 10 plus years and having a spearheaded ESG integration across my prior funds, I recognize that there are a lot of challenges around adoption, not only from a process standpoint, but even a culture one as well. And there's still a lot of skeptics out there in terms of how um, useful ESG can be from a value creation standpoint. So, you know, from our work at Enzo Advisors, when we do ESG integration, we really think of it in four stages, policy development, the actual ESG integration aspect, a portfolio summary, and then external reporting. So when we advise clients, we start to with the process of high level thinking around what do they hope to accomplish? What are the aspirational goals that they wish to line up with? And then we work on putting the process in place. And the goal is never to ask a manager to change their stripes. It's rather take what they're best at and enhance the process and make it more uh, accretive overall in terms of how they're thinking about both risk mitigation as well as value creation. And then when we finish the policy development aspect, we then move into developing and looking at a, a overall competitive landscape assessment to evaluate where the peers are. And then we get into the more detail of providing recommendations uh, using both internal and external sources on how best to integrate ESG across the portfolio. We then will work with them on case studies as well as making sure that uh, the use of external and internal uh, resources is uh, fully uh, integrated in terms of how they look at a given investment. This might vary by sector given the materiality will vary depending on uh, what uh, frameworks we're using. And then lastly, uh, we will help them uh, identify from a summary standpoint standpoint holistically what the portfolio entails uh, from an ESG uh, risk perspective and make sure they have a system in place to continue to monitor that. Um, and so essentially, once we do those three stages, the last stage is external reporting and that from an LP and a client standpoint, we make sure to provide the tools whereby we can discuss the process, the integration, case studies, and provide the framework as well to all stakeholders. That's great because I think that's something that, you know, a lot of advisors don't really know where to start with the process. And so I think breaking it up into those four steps is, is really useful. I think one of the things that we see a lot from our clients is, you know, thinking about the integration process and then also thinking about the step of documentation and how they're going to demonstrate whether it's to regulatory bodies like the SEC or to investors, how they're really incorporating those factors or ESG principles into their portfolio when they're doing the investing. And as you mentioned, it's obviously not really a one size fits all and what's going to work for one firm won't be applicable for another. And so when we talk to clients, we're also focused about them making sure that the process is going to fit within their organization and thinking about how that's going to best work for them, whether that's based on number of personnel, their ability to really kind of stay within different parameters and have different processes and functions, how process oriented they are as a firm in order to make sure that they're really going to be able to deliver on what they've communicated to investors and then also to regulators should they have any kind of regulatory exam or anything like that. 
That's an important point um, in terms of documentation, Debbie, because what we are seeing, especially after that uh, SEC risk alert, is a greater focus on alignment of marketing, compliance, and actual investment process. So we always encourage our clients to identify first and foremost, what is the process and how much of ESG integration do you want to incorporate uh, without changing your um, inherent way of thinking about um, evaluating a company and want to make sure that's very much aligned and they have a chance to really uh, get uh, running with this process and be able to implement it piecemeal first to make sure that this fits with how they think. And second, you know, the, it depends on uh, what type of asset class we're looking at as well. So, for example, we all work with credit investors and there we focus more on the risk profile and thinking about the implications on cash flow. So we'll want to make sure there's good documentation on that side, whereas with equity investors, it'll be a balance between the risk and the value creation side. And then same, similarly on the private market side, we'll spend a lot more on the value creation and really mapping out those tools. And then thinking through the documentation as it pertains to portfolio companies. So there's definitely a lot of involved in that process and being able to do this in phases is very critical. And that's what we help uh, clients with um, across the uh, board of integration. I think that's right because it can seem a little bit overwhelming, particularly with the amount of information that is out there. Um, so one other thing that I think can sometimes be difficult for clients is the fact that there is no standardization or really consistency. And so one of the roadblocks that we've seen to adoption has really been this lack of standardization around information and reporting, particularly from portfolio companies, whether those are public or, or private companies. So how do you suggest that investment managers think about overcoming this challenge across their investment solutions when they're thinking about this ESG integration? There's no question that both investors and broadly speaking, stakeholders really are expressing that need for more information across topics. But the growing sentiment in the US in particular is that regulators are falling behind on ESG, particularly in comparison to the EU. And although SEC hasn't really made any guidelines mandatory at this point, there is definitely a growing consensus that we need some convergence on those frameworks. So I really see a two-pronged uh, problem essentially, Debbie. Uh, one is when we look at some of these issues, there's a problem of lack of information in reporting and lack of consistency in reporting, first and foremost, at the corporate level. And then second, there's a lack of convergence on those frameworks. So, you know, thinking about each of those two points and first focusing on the lack of consistency, it was interesting. There was a study that I saw um, that just came out very recently from the uh, GNA Institute. This is the Governance and Accountability Institute that talked about um, reporting for the Russell 1000. And just to give you some perspective, around 70% percent of those companies have actually published sustainability disclosures, which sounds great as a statistic. However, less than 40% have reported against the uh, accountability uh, standards, and only 17% uh, have reported on climate frameworks. So that just shows you that we have this huge runway, and there's just this um, big, uh, a lot of noise with respect to uh, the data that's being published and how it's being published. And until we start seeing companies report that, until they feel comfortable and have the bandwidth to collect some of this data, we're still a little bit in a void as to what information we can evaluate first and foremost. So that's a, that's a um, underlying challenge that I see across the board. The second part, which uh, fortunately we're starting to see some movement towards, which is on the convergence for frameworks. So there, what we had seen was an alphabet soup of ESG, right? It's like every <laughs> every um, letter possible is being utilized for uh, with respect to frameworks. But the good news is that 
when we started to see some of this convergence, it actually happened earlier this year. Um, the International Integrated Reporting Council, IIRC, uh, merged with the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, the SASB, and they formed a value reporting foundation. And this was an important step because this was the first of seeing a merger between international reporting standards with really what's become the go-to um, in the US markets. And then from there, it was uh, announced just actually in the, in the climate conference in COP26 that the International Financial Reporting Foundation is launching now an international standards board. Um, they are actually consolidating what um, was the value reporting foundation and that is being tied to some of the climate disclosure work. So this is the first time we are seeing that framework for ESG being linked to climate. And it's very interesting because these are two very prominent frameworks that are now going to be aligned and uh, effective really June 2022. So this is a time with this convergence that is actually going to create a lot of opportunity for investors to finally see um, an area of comparability um, whereby they'll be able to look at companies across a certain set of metrics, as well as um, moving that industry irrespective of sector in the direction of um, alignment on how they're reporting. So even if we don't have every metric report against the SASB or TCFD, we're moving in that direction, which is going to create that comparability. That comparability is great from a human intervention standpoint and doing the analysis, but also great for AI as well. So we'll be able to leverage technology and those type of tools. And so putting the two and two together is going to give us a lot more consistency and data going forward, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I think there are a lot of managers, particularly that we talk to, who are thinking about ESG and are really serious about wanting to focus on it, but they don't have a dedicated team in-house to really do that. They have analysts that are obviously looking at a number of you know, different companies and, and issuers and sectors and may not really know where to start when they're looking for this information if they don't have an ESG background. And then they're obviously focused on, you know, other metrics as well, whether that's, you know, financial information and other information about the company related to their investment thesis. And so I think having, you know, also the ability to maybe utilize AI or other technology, that'll be really great for a lot of firms who have strong capabilities in that area as well. I think another thing that comes up for our clients is thinking about ESG ratings and scoring systems, whether they're considering developing one of their own and having some kind of proprietary scoring system, which maybe with the, the comparability will, will help going forward, or you know having them go through the due diligence process with various providers. And I think because of the sometimes lack of transparency in, in how those scores are done or also just, you know, kind of variations in one company versus another based on who's doing the rating, which in part probably comes from availability of information. And then of course the different criteria. I think we've seen, you know, managers find some value in that, but also, you know, knowing that they need to really probably consider that as one factor when they're looking at companies and not really making that kind of dispositive. But there's obviously, you know, a number of, of different ratings providers, MSCI, Sustainalytics, um, Bloomberg. And so there is a lot of debate about whether or not they're going to continue to dominate here or whether or not, you know, there's going to be more funds using their own proprietary tools, which maybe if there is some developed standards that are more consistent would be easier for some funds to do. How do you think about the different ratings in connection with helping managers think about ESG integration? And then do you think that 
this is going to continue to be an area of growth for third party providers? Or do you think this is something that managers are really going to end up taking in house going forward? One of the number one questions I always get from clients and prospects is how do you incorporate the external uh, sources like rating providers, which ones to use and why. And it's been an interesting uh, journey for us because we also are often considered a outsource ESG function for various um, investment uh, houses, whether it's public or private. So we really have the ability to help craft this roadmap of you know, what resources uh, do we advise to use, how much of it is done in-house, and we really help the teams, particularly those funds that do not have an ESG specialist to really build those processes and find a streamlined way to use information that's available without recreating the wheel and then enhancing that process based on your own proprietary due diligence. So, you know, with respect to ratings, I always uh, tell clients that the ratings are like consensus estimates. You need to know them, but you can't necessarily rely on them. And we've started to see a plethora of ESG tools come to the marketplace, uh, everything from MSCI, Sustain Analytics, as you uh, noted, and then and we finally saw a consistency in approach um, with respect to some of these ratings, whereby they looked at certain categories, and then they were uh, essentially grading companies off of those categories. Now, the challenge has been that their AI and oftentimes their um, analysts have not been able to pick up on these changes as fast as they're happening today. So the biggest problem I've seen is that data could be reported and companies are making progress on their plans, but the uh, data that's being reported by the rating providers could be a year, year and a half old. And so we could be looking at dated information, which is the first problem I see. The second problem I see is the classification of information. So there have been situations, even in large cap tech, where I've seen ratings um, very that are very different, actually on different sides of the spectrum between MSCI and Sustainalytics, which has really surprised me. And that really puts the onus on the analyst and portfolio manager to go back, do the due diligence and figure out you know, which of these factors is material or not. That makes it very challenging. So I always say it's a good starting point to understand, you know, high level where those issues are and what's flagged. But even as you dig into those reports and you start looking at not only the, the numbers and looking at the dates of when those uh, publications were put out there, but also looking at the peer benchmarking analysis, you'll find that there's not it's not a perfect science and you really have to do your own homework. So when we advise and work with um, investors, we really advise them on really a couple different steps. First and foremost, we always uh, have investors, public or private market market uh, focused to look at the materiality map to identify what are those key factors that are relevant to a given sector. It's interesting because when you take a look at the SASB framework, it'll cover uh, a large part of what is relevant to a company. But as an investor, when you're thinking about a business model and what's relevant, there might be items that are even missed. So you have to even think a little bit broader beyond those frameworks. So that would be the first step you want to do. Second is uh, looking at the corporate social responsibility report. Again, these uh, rating providers are just a starting point. So you want to do your due diligence on the CSR report and see how they are aligned with the, the SASB as well as the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Disclosure Framework, to identify what the company's holistic uh, strategy is, as well as reading their policies if, if available. Uh, last uh, is engagement with management teams. I can't emphasize this enough that there is more mounting pressure with uh, management teams to deliver um, quickly on programs and they really need to be aligning their business operations with these global ESG standards. So having a regular conversation uh, with management teams, maybe every quarter, maybe every six months is paramount to any process. Um, and that also is an opportunity when you take a look at the MSCI scorecards or any other uh, rating scorecards, you, if you see any disconnect, you have that opportunity to go back and correct that. And it's good to know that 
that because um, there are a lot of quant firms that are running off those ratings. So it's important to recognize if there is any inconsistency in data. And then lastly, you know, the non-financial analysis is becoming more and more as important as the financial side. So being able to find uh, technology solutions, um, as I was alluding earlier, that maybe looks at data a little bit differently is also very relevant. As an example, uh, climate risk assessment is a very critical area, particularly for credit investors. And being able to take a look at physical versus transition risk in a portfolio is very relevant. And you'll likely need uh, various climate risk assessment tools to identify that. So there's a lot of ways to think about technology in a more creative fashion. And so uh, we at Enzo work with companies and investors to identify how do you mix technology and do things efficiently to create that process whereby things can be done in, in a three or six month time span to build out the process, to build out the infrastructure, and that could be tested time and time again. No, I think that's great. I think there's, you know, a lot of opportunities. And like you said earlier, we're, we're only at the beginning of this. And so it's, uh, it's definitely will be interesting to see how this evolves more over time, uh, particularly even as some of the jurisdictions, you know, think about maybe mandating some type of disclosure, particularly on, on climate or, or other areas as well. So we'll definitely see how that turns out. Um, in relation to, we spoke a little bit about public versus private markets earlier, but with respect to our PE clients, they are often thinking about kind of the importance of incorporating value creation drivers to really quantify the impact of ESG initiatives. I know you work with both managers that are in the private equity space and more of the public investing space. So how are you particularly helping your private equity clients think about these value creation opportunities? ESG has typically been thought of as a risk management tool, um, particularly coming from that public asset management side. So it is um, very interesting to see that it's now being thought of as a value creation opportunity for the longer term investors. And that really puts private equity as really a key candidate for evaluating ESG in that lens. And so for the longer term investor, when we look at value creation drivers, there's many aspects of what defines a robust ESG program. Um, it's really aligned with what is uh, defining a uh, best-in-class business model. And so when I advise companies about value creation levers, I think of it, it as a three-pronged approach, uh, revenue growth opportunities, uh, opportunities to uh, save on costs, so essentially the cost efficiency bucket, and then improving cost of capital. And so when we look at the value creation and we try to identify where those drivers are, it's essentially taking a holistic look at the entire supply chain and literally from um, the very beginning, uh, cradle to grave, as they call it, in, um, in more of the ESG technology terminology here, but essentially taking a look at when a product is manufactured, how it's uh, being sourced all the way through the end of when it's delivered to the uh, end market to the customer. And by identifying that, we can look at the value creation opportunities as well as even the risk factors as we look at that analysis. And that analysis allows us to identify where the value creation could lie in the supply chain. And once we identify those avenues and we look at the activity at each stage, that's when we uh, decide on whether that value creation opportunity opportunity falls in revenue, drives costs, or improves cost of capital. So one example would be, you know, if we were looking at a sustainable brand, let's say in the consumer product space, when we think about value creation for that product, the revenue growth um, example would be identifying a pricing premium or identifying market growth opportunities for that given product and aligning with retailers to be able to extend uh, shelf space as a revenue growth driver. A cost initiative could be maybe there are ways to source better or source more efficiently. And then there might also 
be ways to identify uh, better uh, use of packaging. Um, so although the new types of packaging, recyclable packaging might be more expensive, the offset could be on shipping costs because it could be packed in a, in a better fashion. So then we've looked at uh, cost benefit analysis there. And then as the risk gets uh, mitigated off of a business model, particularly as we deal with supply chain disruption, obviously a big topic uh, right now, uh, looking at portfolios, um, as we try to mitigate some of those risk uh, factors, we then have an ability to improve overall cost of capital. There's a lot of avenues whereby we can consider an improvement on cost of capital, but it's really taking the volatility out of a, of a business model. And even uh, more interestingly, uh, there's been uh, some recent academic research and more white papers out about how diversity and inclusion have also been improving uh, the overall cost of capital, which, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so we look at all these drivers and then we quantify those value creation opportunities to help a uh, private equity firm identify, well, this is the potential value growth that could come from incorporating ESG factors. That's something to be considered in an exit and a, and a sale. And this might even result in multiple expansion over time. That's great. I think that's an, an interesting topic and, and definitely something that, you know, is going to be relevant for a lot of our clients who are, who are thinking about that. One other final topic, because we've covered a lot of, of really great discussion points already, is just net zero. There's obviously a lot of talk, whether it's on, you know, companies or or managers thinking about this. There obviously was a, you know, net zero asset managers initiative, which a number of managers have signed on to, and we've had discussions with managers who are thinking about that. And so in relation to, to that, and obviously the, the focus on climate and likelihood of upcoming regulations regarding climate disclosure, it may become mandatory really across a lot of global regions. How would you help clients think about really building some kind of net zero framework and, and thinking about kind of you know, how this will work, knowing that they're going to, you know, obviously be investing in, in a variety of different sectors and geographies where some of it may be more feasible than others. It's a, definitely an evolving topic. And if ESG was the buzzword of 2020, net zero is the buzzword of 2021. So there's definitely a lot to unpack here uh, with respect to net zero alignment and how folks think about it. And frankly, there's even still confusion about what is net zero, what is carbon neutrality, uh, where does carbon offsets fit into this? So, you know, for purposes of how we define uh, net zero, we are really looking for uh, ways to help companies um, incorporate um, operational efficiencies to basically uh, build out a net zero strategy. Uh, this is before you, the utilization of carbon offsets. So we're really looking at that operational efficiency and what can companies do to get to that, to that level. So as we evaluate public companies, as we help private equity with their portfolios, we always separate out what is defined as net zero and what is defined from a carbon neutrality standpoint, first and foremost. So, you know, for those who might be a bit newer to the climate terminology uh, on this call, just want to clarify that, you know, the 2050 target that's out there that we've all been hearing about, uh, particularly coming off that climate conference, it just relates to the plan about limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees uh, pre at pre-industrial levels. And so essentially to keep the global temperatures within that construct, we need emissions to fall 45% by 2030. Um, um, and that is a heroic feat. So the question is, how do we get there and how do we 
support the companies that get there. Uh, there's definitely regulations and climate financing that is moving us in that direction, but the onus is on investors, particularly as we see the convergence of frameworks and more data is available to uh, be more engaged with management teams and make sure they're on track to achieve these goals, because this is a quite a lot to do within a span of just uh, under 10 years. And so what does this mean for the portfolios and investment managers? Well, in due time, once we start seeing greater disclosure and regulation, um, we likely are going to start seeing what's actually happened in the UK. So interestingly, in the, after this climate conference, the UK announced that all UK-based asset managers will be required to disclose their net zero transition plans through a comply or explain regime. So that in itself, if uh, US is really following the footsteps of what we're seeing in the EU and other markets, we might start seeing that. We might start seeing the need for uh, disclosure. And if that is the case, there's a lot of different avenues that we can consider as an investment manager on how to be net zero aligned. Um, there is A, uh, tilting a portfolio towards green revenue or focusing on climate technology solutions. This is something we see a lot in the private markets. We've seen climate tech uh, within the VC market uh, really explode over the last two years. And so this is definitely a growth area. And it's frankly become a growth area as we've seen some of the public equities um, move in that same direction. And we really see a lot of these stock um, prices up and to the right. Um, similarly, another approach that I see is being more engaged with management teams. So you could have legacy assets that are being impacted um, by this clean tech transition or clean energy transition, but having a more engaged approach and finding those transformative stories is another avenue that portfolio managers can consider of who is going to be the winners and losers in this uh, net zero world. And then the last piece is the exclusionary approach, which is excluding sectors. And we've seen uh, several pension funds and allocators talk about uh, divesting exposure to fossil fuels, as an example. So this would be the third area that uh, we have seen some growth in. So really, first and foremost, is that um, uh, three parts of which you can consider the, the tilting the portfolio, engaging more with management or exclusion. And then from there, we then think about, well, where does the analysis then fit in um, with respect to linking fundamental and the uh, non-financial analysis, particularly as it pertains to climate and thinking about strategy? Well, that really applies to all three buckets um, because you still have to be sharp in understanding what that climate risk assessment could be for a portfolio. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the credit folks will definitely want to quantify some of that risk, but frankly, even the equity analysts will want to understand you know, the balance between the risk and the value creation, uh, particularly if they take a more engaged approach. So firms that are able to take um, the, the second um, approach of being more engaged, they really have the opportunity here to um, evolve and watch a company grow and build its ESG roadmap. Now, large cap has a lot more data. They've been moving further along um, on this journey, and there it's more of a progress check, whereas the small mid cap space is just early days of launching programs. So there's a lot of more work to be done, and definitely an actively managed um, approach is more relevant in that case even. Um, but as we start to see uh, some of these uh, differentials in asset class and the disclosure come out, uh, this will be an opportunity for um, managers to uh, take a more uh, active stewardship approach, maybe not be activists, but just essentially track how companies are doing with respect to the 1.5 degree uh, long-term target. That in itself will result in um, probably some shifts in sectors. Um, the natural shifts will probably see certain sectors respond better than others. And as I mentioned, by cap, we're going to start to see a little bit of shift on that 
that as well. And then incorporating and putting all that together would allow um, companies to be aligned with a 1.5 degree scenario, provided that the companies that are putting out those net zero commitments actually have a plan in action. And this is really where the engagement with investors is paramount importance. It's not just about what the, what's on the CSR report, but what are they doing to deliver that? Uh, so we have, have actually advised in investors to uh, build out impact reports, um, to talk about what their companies are doing, and to provide all this information on an annual call with their own um, um, investors as well, because this is um, not only about disclosure and policies, but it's about measurement of impact. And that's where the world is going today. On the private side, it's, um, it's slightly different. We've seen some ESG integration reports. Uh, Blackstone actually recently published out there uh, integration of um, ESG, and they talked about decarbonization efforts across the portfolio. So there, it's of paramount importance to have a process that looks at decarbonization in a apples to apples way, whether it's looking at uh, starting with ratings providers or thinking about some of it from a strategic standpoint, bringing in an operationals team to look at uh, what could be opportunities to um, think of decarbonization, think of the pathways, and how do you implement some of those changes? So rather than just to say to a strategic when it's time to sell, hey, these are the opportunities you can pursue, maybe when you acquire a company, you can think about some of those levers uh, right off the bat, and not only about the risk side, but longer term value creation aspects. So I'm seeing a lot more private equity firms build out capabilities on that side, uh, particularly in decarbonization, to make sure their portfolio has a way of getting to that 1.5 degree scenario. And it doesn't need to be as extreme um, in terms of uh, providing those long-term targets right away, but eventually the goal would be to uh, be aligned with that 1.5 degree uh, approach. Yeah, I think this is definitely something that we'll continue to hear more about, particularly as you mentioned, as investors, including pension funds, endowments, foundations, focus on this at their own portfolio level. I think managers probably can expect to get more questions about what they're doing on this and I think this is another area where even managers that don't consider themselves to be activists can really, particularly if there's increased information, really hold companies accountable, whether that's you know not necessarily in maybe public facing actions necessarily, if that's not how you would typically engage with companies, but particularly if you're a larger shareholder, really just engaging with them, even just by asking questions and really asking about plans as opposed to you know just kind of looking at the information in a more passive way and really thinking about the accountability and kind of the steps and processes that the companies have in place in order to, to reach that goal that they've set, whatever that may be. And if they haven't publicly set any goal, also you know speaking with them about why they haven't done that and, and thinking about maybe a process to help them get there. So I know that's something our clients are, are thinking about, particularly with companies where they tend to be long-term stakeholders. Um, so Nidhi, it's been great having you on the podcast today. I know you've shared a lot of wonderful insights with all of our investment management clients, and we look forward to having you on again in 2022, where we'll have to find out what the new ESG-related buzzwords is and and also look forward to uh, speaking with you about different evolutions, particularly as maybe we see more regulatory actions in the U.S. as well. Thanks, Debbie. It's uh, great to be here and uh, happy to answer any uh, questions. And I think, as you said, in summary, it's all about the process and building out that infrastructure up front and being able to be efficient in how you're thinking about it and finding ways to scale that up, uh, particularly with the smaller team. So uh, excited to see uh, what's to come in the world of uh, public and private markets as ESGA integration becomes uh, more of a norm.